Douglas is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. I was living on the streets when I heard this guy talk about how he got clean and sober at the mission. So I decided to give it a try. I could feel something working inside of me and I knew I was getting better. Today, my number one goal is to stay clean and sober. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. This is Max Hedrum. Our generation may not remember the moon landing, but we remember moon boots. If you owe a few cavities to candy cigarettes, learned your adverbs from schoolhouse rocks, burned your shins on a hot metal slide with sharp edges, exploding pop rocks for science, and you still want your MTV, then this podcast is for you. Dancing with Myself is dedicated to the decade of excess, the 1980s. So pull up your leg warmers and let's get physical. You're listening to Dancing With Myself, an 80s podcast. I'm Heather and this is episode 16. On November 13th of 1982, 150,000 Vietnam veterans and their families gathered in Washington, D.C. for the dedication of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Funded through private contributions, the memorial had been conceived, planned, and established by Vietnam veterans. Like the war to which it bore testimony, the memorial was surrounded by controversy at each stage of planning and construction. Many suggested America was still trying to ignore or forget the conflict that caused so much impassioned division and then ended in defeat. Criticism was especially heated regarding the design that won the competition for the memorial, submitted by Maya Ying Lin, a 21-year-old undergraduate architecture student at Yale University. She envisioned a black granite wall positioned in the shape of a stretching open wedge with the names of the Americans killed in Southeast Asia carved in the polished granite surface. Eventually, there would be more than 58,000 names on the wall. Many veterans expressed dismay at the simplicity of the design. Journalist Tom Wolfe ridiculed the plan. The National Review, a leading conservative magazine called Lynn's Design, Orwellian Glop, and an outrage. But other veterans liked it, and in the end, after approval by the National Parks Commission, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial was situated on the National Mall near the Lincoln Memorial. At the dedication, a writer observed the veterans and families who came to view the new memorial. Quote, they looked for the names of loved ones, old comrades, someone from home. They laid little tributes at the base of the wall, touched the incised letters of the names, and they saw themselves reflected like shadows of history in the dark and shining stone. The originators of the American punk rock scene began to disperse and lose energy in 1979. Patti Smith retired, the Ramones turned to Phil Spector for inspiration, but punk itself was far from over. While Blondie, Talking Heads, and other seminal bands were basking somewhere in the top 40, many of the groups they had inspired were busy reinventing punk for themselves. In Los Angeles, bands such as X and Black Flag helped to find the sound of a post-punk era. X, featuring the husband-wife team of guitarist, singer John Doe, and vocalist Exine Cervinka, mixed tumble-down, off-kilter rhythms, and darkly humorous lyrics of alienation and despair on their first album, Los Angeles, released in 1980. 
Under the Big Black Sun, 1982, was their most compelling work, full of deadpan numbers such as The Hungry Wolf and The Real Child of Hell that celebrated the romantic insanity of a decaying world. The members of Black Flag, also from Los Angeles, were early exemplars of what came to be known as hardcore, a stripped-down, revved-up attack of guitars and drums and vocals. In 1981, the band created its own label, SST, to release Damaged. Their early 1980s anthems of rage and pain include Rise Above, TV Party, Depression, Dead Inside, and Life of Pain, Pain is my girlfriend, singer Henry Rollins said, quote, when you see me perform, it's that pain you're seeing coming out. Deep inside of Mike Tyson dwelt a primal force. Unleashed in the ring, it was devastating. Tyson had spent most of his youth in juvenile detention centers, began boxing in 1980 at the age of 13 under 72-year-old trainer Cus D'Amato. Before the decade ended, he won 36 straight fights all but four by knockouts. In 1986, he became the youngest heavyweight champion in history, and in 1987, he captured all three heavyweight titles from the World Boxing Council, the World Boxing Association, and the International Boxing Federation. Tyson was perhaps the most bruising of the fighters who revived interest in the sport in the 1980s, but none had more fans than his contemporary, near the lighter end of the boxing white classes, Sugar Ray Leonard, a master boxer with a powerful punch. By decade's end, Sugar Ray Leonard had fought his way to a 36-1 record, world championships in three different weight classes, and more than $100 million in prize money. His only defeat came in June of 1980 in a close decision favoring former lightweight champion Roberto Duran. Leonard not only avenged that loss twice, but also defeated the unbeaten Tommy Hitman Hearns, and after retiring twice, came back in 1987 to defeat the World Boxing Council middleweight champion Marvelous Marvin Hagler.